Welcome to the sermon podcast of Harbor Church, located in downtown Olympia, capital city of Washington State. If you're looking for a church to belong to in the South Sound region, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship gatherings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. For more information about Harbor Church, visit our website at harborolympia.com. My name is Jerry Austin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Harbor, and it's a privilege to be here this morning with you and open God's Word with you. Today we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. Today we're in Acts chapter 16, and we will be beginning uh, in verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 16. If you want to turn to that in your Bible or your app, um, we will be going through the end of the chapter, verse 40. I'm going to break this section into three uh, parts. First, we have Paul and Silas in confrontation with a demon. Uh, then we'll see Paul and Silas in conflict with the town. And then finally, we will see God's sovereign will in the conversion of a certain nailer, uh, jailer. Did you hear the alliteration there? It's a confrontation, conflict, and conversion. So now it's a real sermon. I nailed the alliteration. Paul wrote to Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. However, you notice when sometimes you're reading Scripture and you come across a section, it just jumps out at you as this could have come from today's headlines. And today's passage uh, is exactly that. It's as relevant today as it was in Paul's time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask you to prepare our hearts to receive it. Illuminate your Scripture for us this morning. Holy Spirit, write these words on our heart. Holy Spirit, put your words in my mouth this morning. Father, our desire is that you would be glorified here today. Amen. Let's look at our first section of Scripture this morning, verses 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So what's happening here? Well, Paul and Silas encounter a girl who is enslaved and whose owners are profiting from this alleged gift of divination. Now, I say alleged gift because the text clearly tells us that this, spirit, this girl has a spirit living within her that is the source of her divination abilities. In modern terms, we would say that this girl is a medium and that she is in communication with demons. The passage tells us that she kept following Paul and Silas around for several days, proclaiming, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And what she is saying is true. 
So why is it that Paul is so greatly annoyed by this? Paul undoubtedly saw this as a demonic attack on his ministry. While the words are true, that's exactly what makes this situation dangerous. You see, one of Satan's uh, tactics is to appear as an agent of truth. Satan will speak the truth when it suits his purposes to disguise himself or his emissaries as angels of light. Notice that here he even uses terms from Scripture. The girl called them servants of the Most High God. We've seen that before in Scripture. Satan will frequently mix some truth with a lie in order to lead people into a false religion or in some other way pull them away from worshiping the one true God. Paul knows that it appears that uh, this girl is agreeing with them. And a casual observer might assume that she was part of their group, giving her a certain amount of credibility, which would in turn put her in a position to do great harm. Our world has plenty of false religions that look like Christians. They often have some element of truth to them. They're full of nice people. But they systematically start with destroying the authority of Scripture. And they replace the authority of Scripture with the teachings of man, which shift all authority away from God and to man. It's an effective means of drawing people away from truth and worshiping the true God. And almost always, a part of this is to take away the divinity of Christ. Jesus is present in some of these false religions, but he is not God become man in those religions. And thus, his atonement for your sins on the cross uh, isn't really atonement at all. You must atone for your sins in these religions. We see mediums at work in our world today. Occasionally, uh, you can see uh, on television someone who is in front of a, a studio audience, and someone is randomly picked from the audience, and the medium tells them things that no one else could possibly know. Sometimes this medium is allegedly talking to a, a dead relative, and uh, and they're passing along information that only the dead person and the person in the audience could know. Ah, but wait. Who else could know that information? Certainly, God knows this information, but so do the demonic spirits. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 6, he writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, is it possible that this TV show is a total scam and everything is prearranged and the person in the audience is a plant? Absolutely, it's possible, but not necessarily. 
Do we honestly look at this passage of Scripture and say, oh, that was such a long time ago. Satan doesn't do that anymore. We don't have time this morning to go into all the places where this could take us. Um, the paranormal, tarot cards, readings, and the like. But to su suffice it to say that your dead relatives are not walking this earth like in a Charles Dickens Christmas story. So what happens next? Let's look at verse 18. Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The apostles had been given the authority to cast out demons by Jesus, and that's exactly what Paul does here. The demon is under subjection to the name of Jesus Christ. We know that this girl is uh, delivered from an evil spirit uh, this day, but we don't know what happens to her after this. But what we do know is the reaction of her owner, the conflict verses 19 through 21. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. One commentary I read said that this, this, uh, this, this kind of divination or fortune-telling was very popular in Greek and Roman cultures. But really, show me a time, any time in history or in any culture where this isn't popular. Um, it continues today in our culture. We fancy ourselves as a, an advanced uh, people, uh, educated, uh, understanding of advanced scientific thought, but we still are falling for this today. Its popularity in the Macedonia region would also have meant that it was very profitable. And in this case in particular, um, this uh, girl is enslaved, and she's making, they're making 100% profit from her. Uh, presumably, uh, they fed and clothed her, but that's a pretty low overhead. So this is a, a very profitable operation. And so their reaction to seeing this come to a screeching halt is uh, predictable. They are furious. Their reaction also illustrates the inhumane cruelty of slavery. Instead of being happy over her deliverance, uh, they are enraged at their loss of income. They had a good thing going, and Paul ruined it. So in anger over their monetary loss, they drag Paul and Silas before the town magistrates, and they demand justice. Now, they're not completely straightforward with their charges against these two. Their accusers don't mention the casting out of demons or their loss of income as a result. It, and it's possible that they did not comprehend that this girl was uh, demon-possessed. I don't think that we can fully assess that. But what they knew was that they had lost a source of revenue. But their accusations go directly to what they knew. Paul and Silas uh, would get the most severe reaction from the town magistrates. They were Jews, they were disturbing the city, and they were advocating for a religion that uh, was not lawful for Romans. And their accusations are true. Paul and Silas were Jews. 
And it's interesting to note here that Luke and Timothy are both with them, but as Gentiles, they are not arrested. So there's a bit of an anti-Semitic tone here. And as Jews, the presumption was that they weren't Roman citizens, so they're not that important. And uh, there's actually a, a kind of an anti-Semitic tone going through the whole Roman Empire because right about the same time, uh, Emperor Claudius has expelled all Jews from Rome. They said that they were disturbing the city. Also true. As we'll see in our text, a, a riot nearly breaks out. And they said that Roman citizens were forbidden by law to participate in any religion that was not sanctioned by Rome. And Christianity was certainly not sanctioned by Rome. But let's not forget what really motivated this outrage. It wasn't any of those accusations. It was all about the money. I want to take a, a few minutes this morning and talk about idols. And when I talk about idols, I'm not talking about little statues that represent a, a, a false god or uh, symbols in a... In a, in a um, uh, shrine to a false god. I'm talking about the idols of our hearts. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. God created us to be, in, be continuous worshipers, 24-7 worshiping. We were created to be in continual relationship with and in worship of God. But centered in the picture, uh, even though we're still continual worshipers, Paul says in Romans 1, that we now worship the creation rather than the creator. God has blessed us with many good things, but we can also, also often take a good thing and turn it into an idol. God puts desires in our hearts, and those desires can be good things. But when this desire uh, becomes a demand, we have a problem. When that desire becomes a need, we have a problem. When those desires become a demand or a need, we have a worship problem. It has become an idol. And it causes a heart change, and then a behavior change. If you want to find an idol in your heart, you can reverse engineer this uh, a bit and look for reactions of anger. Often, when we react with anger to a situation or a person, it's because someone has poked at one of our idols. That idol is now threatened, and the threat of our idol will in many times result in an angry reaction, just like it does here in our passage in Acts. That's what happens when our idol is taken away or it fails us. We will lash out. Idols have deep claws, and they dig in deep, and they hang on. We can make anything into an idol, but money, wealth, and comfort are some of the most common. And they are at the center of this issue in the passage. We can see this play out in other passages as well. 
over in Mark 5, we see Jesus cast out a demon, actually many demons from a man uh, who were possessed. They were, he was demon-possessed. He cast them into a herd of about 2,000 pigs. The pigs rush into the sea and are drowned. This is no small economic impact on a small community. The town hears what happens. They come out and they see this uh, man that they know, the former possessed man. They see him sitting there fully clothed and in his right mind. And their reaction? They beg Jesus to leave their town. We will later see in Acts that the gospel will have a negative impact on the business of making idols in Ephesus. The silversmiths who made shrines to Artemis lost quite a bit of business because the gospel was preached there, and a riot ensues. Money is one of those insidious idols. We all need money to survive, right? The problem is we always need just a little bit more than what we have. If we're sitting pretty at the top of the hill and anything threatens our current situation, our comfort, or our security, we react, and we often react poorly. Welcome to the American dream. Three bedrooms, two baths, two cars in the garage. It's insidious because it just doesn't satisfy for very long. We need just a few more square feet. We need a fourth bedroom, maybe a boat, a fat 401k. It just goes on and on. It never ends. We just finished a sermon series in the book of Revelation, and one of the themes that we saw reoccurring throughout that book was don't buy into the empire. Don't get absorbed into the financial um, prosperity of the empire. Hold it loosely and hold it with an open hand. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The easiest thing to say is, uh, that's not me. I don't love money. I don't make money an idol. But it creeps up on you, slowly. And it's easy to rationalize. So constantly check your hearts. Check yourself with folks that you are in community with. Ask God to reveal the loves of your heart. It saddens me to look back over many years ago and uh, remember two different elder teams that I served on, two different churches that I was a part of, and we were presented with the issue of standing with Scripture to stand for what was right in God's Word or face the possibility of a lawsuit. 
And in both instances, fear drove the decision to inaction. Uh, not only was there the fear of a lawsuit, but uh, when this uh, be, would become uh, public knowledge, we would lose the tenders. And in this context, losing a tenders meant losing money. And it seemed clear to me then and now, it's God's church. God is in control. God is not moved to inaction because of the possibility of a lawsuit. Fear of man drove those decisions. The fear of loss of money moved us to inaction. Now, I know uh, opinions run hot on this topic. However, throughout the whole COVID pandemic, we saw a lot of irrational anger over the economy and masks and the restrictions and all of the rest. And we've seen a lot of anger expressed over the past presidential election, and it continues. And what does irrational anger sometimes indicate? Some idols were poked at. Now, I realize that I just gave you a big loophole that you could drive a truck through when I said irrational, and your response might be, well, it wasn't irrational, it was justified. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean it justifies anger as a response, necessarily. Plenty of Christians will go from zero to 60 when there is an expression of an opinion that is different than their own, or when they've been inconvenienced, or when they've been made uncomfortable. At times, suffering and anger are like two conjoined rooms with a revolving door between them. And I've noticed that uh, within the Christian culture, uh, a propensity to become angry over what we perceive as suffering. And I say this uh, specifically in regard to what modern Christians in the United States are perceiving as persecution. They're taking our white rights away. Uh, they hate the church. They want to tell us what to do. And on and on it goes. And I want to say I have no problem with concern over most of these issues. But they become something that certain Christian minorities rally around, and I think they have placed at the center of their end of the uh, polarized political divide. And however, to a large extent, Christians in the U.S. know very little about what it's like to suffer for their faith because or because of it. And I only need to point to China or certain Middle Eastern countries to find an example of horrific persecution against Christians. Now, I'm not saying that being shunned at work um, or in a social setting because of your faith is easy. But what I am saying is that there is a tendency for Christians in our country to suffer in a manner that is not exemplified in Scripture. 2 Peter 2 says, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter quotes Isaiah 53 in that passage, which refers to Christ's perfect example of suffering. No whining, no stamping of feet, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Is there something called justified anger? Certainly. Certainly there is. But this is a much narrower category. Anger at wolves coming into the church to drag people away from the gospel is deserving of righteous anger. Evil committed in the name of God should evoke righteous anger. Innocents being harmed when children or the unborn are harmed, when people are abused. Christians should be angered by injustice, especially injustice against disadvantaged people. And these are just a few of the things that come to mind. Now, aside from that category, that exa those examples, Christians shouldn't be angry at non-believers not acting like Christians. They are spiritually blind. Would we be angry at a blind person because they could not see? Certainly not. I would hope that we would respond with compassion. Anger can also be a reaction to a different kind of an idol being poked at, the loss of control. And the fallacy there is that you were never in control to begin with. God is in control. Nothing that happened in the last year came as a surprise to God. Nothing that happened in the last year happened outside of God's sovereign will. Your anger is probably just a reaction to a perceived loss of control. As the writer of the Hebrews said, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So back to Paul and Silas, what's happening next? Verses 22 through 24. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having or received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, that wasn't very friendly, was it? But God has a plan. Let's look at verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly the, uh, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. God had a plan. The conflict and the beating was for a purpose, God's purpose. Paul and Silas had an appointment with a certain jailer in his family uh, that evening whom God was going to save that very night. And we don't know who else was impacted by the gospel that night. If we allow ourselves to read into the text just a little bit, the other prisoners did not escape uh, when they had the chance. Was it because they were terrified from the earthquake or were they influenced by Paul and Silas and the gospel that they shared? We just don't know. Neither do we always know what impact our testimony has when we are suffering. Our suffering will indicate to those around us where our confidence lies. Let's look at verse 25 again. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. If you were in that prison with Paul and Silas, uh, and you heard them singing uh, hymns to God and praying, what would that tell you about Paul and Silas? You would have a clear understanding of where they had placed their confidence. They took a beating. Their feet were in stocks, and yet they were praying and singing to the Lord. And the prisoners were listening. Over the past few years, I've had uh, several surgeries, open heart surgery, cancer surgery. None of them fun. But I hope it was clear to the doctors, the nurses, my friends, and my family um, that I didn't fret. I wasn't uh, fearful. Uh, I knew that God was in control of my life. God was in control of my future. And I found great peace in knowing that my life was in God's hands. Now, before I leave you with the illusion that I am a great stalwart of faith, if it is Janice that I'm taking to the ER, I'm a bundle of nerves. That being said, I understand that suffering is a difficult topic. And many of you have suffered horrific things. And I don't want to give you a platitude that says, buck up, God's got this. Your suffering is real. The pain that you have experienced is real. The very question of why does God allow suffering is a difficult one to wrestle with. And it's a whole sermon series all by itself. Suffering the betrayal of a Christian friend is far more painful than any surgery that I've ever had. But I do find strength in knowing that Jesus has experienced that exact same thing. 
Jesus was God become a man to come to earth to be rejected by his own creation, to be deserted by his closest friends in his darkest hours. He knows what it's like. And he is a great comforter. In addition, notice that Paul and Silas were together in the jail, taking fellowship with the Spirit and lifting up praises together. Suffering can often feel like a very lonely burden, but it's much easier to bear with other believers. In a Christ-centered, loving community of believers, God is glorified in how we suffer and lift one another up. If you haven't suffered yet, you will. The question is, will you suffer well? I just tiptoed through a minefield called suffering, and I don't want any misunderstandings. Uh, if you have any questions or confusion about anything I said or your suffering, I would love to talk with you about it. Uh, come up after the service, uh, write me, email me, call me, uh, whatever, but I don't, I don't want any misunderstandings about suffering. So please reach out to me. So how does our story end? It ends with an interesting twist, verses 35 through 40. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Paul and Silas get a, a little uh, sweet satisfaction in the end. Uh, by Roman law, as Roman citizens, it was illegal for them to have been beaten, uh, not to mention punished without a trial. So when the magistrates realize that they are Roman citizens, they're very afraid because they realize that if Rome learned of this, they could be in some really big trouble. So they trip over themselves, apologizing to Paul and Silas, still begging them to leave the city because they have caused just a little bit too much trouble. This 16th chapter of Acts has a lot going on in it. We see the demonic at work. We see what happens when the idols of our heart are attacked. And we see that God has a plan for our suffering. So what is the big takeaway from all of this? I hope that the one thing that we can see throughout all the drama in this chapter is that God is in control. God is in control over the demonic. Paul cast out the demon in the name of Jesus Christ and the spirit had to obey. The evil spirit was under the subjection of Jesus. God is in control, not the idols of our heart. The things that we build up as all important um, desires that captivate the heart are all fleeting and are vulnerable. When they vanish, 
we are left devastated. I am not in control. I am not God, even when I think I am. God is in control of our suffering. God is always with us in our suffering. Jesus experienced suffering. He knows what we are dealing with. If our hearts are free from idols and we are focused on eternity, God will be glorified in our suffering. Let me end with a couple of questions this morning. Do you believe that God is in control? A better question is, do your actions support that you really do believe that? What is one area in which you struggle to give up the illusion of control? Is your home in heaven or is it in the comfortable house that you live in today? Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word, Lord. Your servant Paul wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Holy Spirit, use the words of Acts breathed out by you to move us towards righteousness. Grant us repentance. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to show us our hearts. Show us where we have misplaced our confidence at times. Show us our sin. Father, we are grateful that you are in control. It gives us a peace to know that nothing happens outside your sovereign will. We find comfort in resting in your will. Forgive us when we strive with you for control. Forgive us when we try to usurp your authority. We love you, Father. Amen. As we transition to a time of response, let's focus our hearts on communion. The participation in the Lord's Supper focuses us on the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Martin Luther coined the phrase, uh, the great exchange, referring to the death of Jesus on the cross, the death that we deserved, paying the price for our sin that we could not pay, exchanging our sin for his righteousness. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together.
Pray with me. Jesus, we are overwhelmed when we consider the price that you paid on our behalf to leave your place of majesty in heaven, to humble yourself in becoming a man, to pay the penalty for our rebellion against you. Your love is beyond our comprehension. We are grateful for our salvation. We are grateful for your sacrifice. We are grateful for our new life in you, the new creations that we are because of you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us, visit our website at harborolympia.com or visit us in person on Sundays at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We hope you'll join us this coming Sunday.